Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. And we will just read to verse 8. Luke 16, 1 through 8. So if last week's parable, the parable of the prodigal son, is universally considered to be Jesus' greatest parable, uh, the parable we're going to look at today and we're about to read is just about universally considered to be Jesus' worst parable, <laughs> if we can say that. Uh, it's definitely a strange parable. We kind of wonder, is Jesus kind of scraping the barrel? Did he use all his, like his good material in the last chapter and now he needed to add in another? Old commentator said, no other parable has caused as much perplexity and has received as many interpretations as this one. Another one said, it's notoriously one of the most difficult parables to interpret. And of course, that root problem is what we're going to see, is that Jesus commends a steward who's just such a, terrible person. <laughs> so let's read it. It's God's word. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. And I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this word, and it's a good word for us today, it endures forever. Amen. So this guy is just an unsavory, sleazy guy. And it's really hard to believe that Jesus would hold him up as an example in anything. Like we, we don't want this guy to be an example to us of anything. I don't want to learn from this guy. It, it rubs me the wrong way that Jesus uses him in my life. Learn from him. It's kind of like years ago, I watched that American mobster with Denzel Washington and he's a terrible guy, but he does some things really well. A family man, looks out for his mama, buys her a house, but he's killing a community. 
But just remember, Jesus' parables were meant to shock us. They, they rattle us. They intend to do that because you and me get fixed in a certain view of God, in a certain view of ourselves, that we kind of drift into conformity to this world. There's always a hook in the parables, or as Ferguson says, they get under our skin, and this one gets under our skin. Jesus wants it to. Just remember that we just got through with the parable of the prodigal son, but remember it should have been the parable of the prodigal sons, because he tells it primarily to, primarily to the Pharisees and the scribes, and they knew all too well that he was identifying them with the elder son. And he's telling them, why do tax collectors and sinners flock to me? Why do I befriend them? And he's telling them, look, I'm just reflecting the heart of God. He overflows with love and grace and boundless mercy to those who are in need and know their sin and know they need a savior. He's going after them. And the Pharisees just did not like that. And so they're the older brother. And what is so endearing to us when we see our sin and see the father coming after us again in his grace was startling, shocking, and infuriating to them when they saw themselves and the elder brother and the father coming after them and urging them by his grace to come to the house. It was a hook. So in 16.1, Jesus' primary audience has now shifted to the disciples. It's not the Pharisees and scribes primarily. And so this parable doesn't teach us how to enter the kingdom. Chapter 15 is a great chapter about entering the kingdom. By grace alone. This parable is how to live in the kingdom. It's that if you have come in touch with God's extravagant grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this will so radically affect your life that everything about your life is touched and influenced by this. Nothing remains outside of this relationship with God that you've been given by grace. So they're companion chapters, really. So Jesus says there was a rich man who had a manager, and the rich man is a guy who owned a big estate. He could have been an absentee landlord or a resident landlord, we're just not sure. In any event, he entrusts his estate to a manager, this, this steward. And he gives this steward a lot of authority, authority to act as his agent. Like where the steward is, there he is. He can make contracts and even remake contracts. Maybe it's kind of similar to in Genesis, Joseph, who was working in Potiphar's house, had so much authority that all Potiphar had to worry about was his food. But now this manager seems to even have more authority than Joseph because it seems he's not a slave but a free man. When he messes up, he loses his job. So reports and complaints, accusations come to the owner, the master, about the manager. Seem like they're coming in from various sources. And, and these accusations are never disputed. So it just seems like they're patently true. Everybody sees that they're true. And the charges are that he's wasting the master's possessions. 
He most likely is not embezzling or lining his pockets or siphoning money off, at least directly. What he's doing is just like cheating his master out of his goods by mismanaging them or using them for himself, neglecting his duties, enjoying the perks of his position and authority, enjoying having access to good stuff, living large, throwing his weight around, that sort of thing. He's not being diligent, conscientious, and and faithful with his responsibilities. That wasting word is the same word for squander that the prodigal son does in the far country. He just runs through it, uses it up in reckless living. So we're to compare him to the prodigal son, kind of self-absorbed, narcissistic, out for himself, just want to use it for his enjoyment. So when the master hears the reports about him, he calls him into his office. The charges are so bad that he just on the spot fires him. He demands that he get the books in order, up to date, ready for his successor, and turn them in. So the manager is done. He's out of a job. From one day he had everything, now he has nothing. And then Jesus lets us in on what the manager is thinking. He does that sometime, what his mental processes are, and it's very instructive for us. So he thinks, well, I'm without a job. I'm in a tight spot. This is serious. What am I going to do? My name is Mud. Pretty soon everybody's gonna hear about it. The only job I'll be able to get is digging ditches. Or the other, other option is that I can go around begging. I mean, that's it. I've hit rock bottom. And I'm too weak for the former. Like, I'm not gonna dig. I don't have calluses on my hands. Like, I'm a desk guy. I'm too proud for the latter. I'm, I'm used to telling people what to do. I'm not gonna be asking for charity. So what am I gonna do? Well, this is serious business here. And the sense is the light bulbs come on for him. He has this eureka moment. He, he goes, I've got it, I've got it, I've got a plan. He hatches this plan. So he says, I've got to act now to make the most of this narrow window of opportunity. Time is short. It's of the essence. I have to, before the word gets out about me, I have to do some favors for my master's debtors so that they'll feel obligated to do some favors for me. And his plan especially works in a culture that plays such a high value on an ethic of reciprocity. The Greco-Roman world was all about reciprocity. It's that my honor depends on if you do a solid for me, I've got to return a solid to you. You scratch my back, I'm honor bound to scratch yours. That's just how life worked. So his plan fits that kind of society very well. So the favor he wants from his master's debtors is to be received into their homes, one after the other, kind of successively. Given a place to stay, shown hospitality, at least for a good long time, until he finally gets his legs out from under him or things change. And he probably also wants one of these debtors to hire him on in some capacity. So he calls in the master's debtors one by one. No other witnesses, just one by one, these debtors. And, and Jesus only gives us two examples, but the idea is that there's a lot of them. And he calls in as many as he can in the short time that he has. 
and the master does not know what's going on. And we're to view these debtors as innocent of what's happening. They're not aware of what's going on. They're not complicit. They just say, what good fortune. Because in that culture, sometimes these loans would be reduced for various market conditions. And, you know, they just wonder, well, maybe, you know, to keep business going, that there's a reason for this. And they're, I mean, thank the Lord, he's reducing my debt. So there's various theories about what exactly the steward does, how he does reduce their debt. We don't have nearly enough time to go into all that, but the, the, you know, he does something very dishonest and very deceptive. From squandering and mismanaging now to, to outright fraud and theft. So for the two cases given, he says to the first, how much do you owe my master? And so either this debtor had taken goods out on credit and needed to pay back in kind, or he had leased land for farming that would then be paid by a portion of the produce. One of the two options. So the first debtor says, well, a hundred measures of oil, and that's a whole lot. In that culture, it's a ton. It's between 875 and 1,000 gallons of olive oil. It would be the annual yield of a a, a large olive grove and valued at some 1,000 denarii, which is about three years of pay for a day laborer. So this isn't just like a subsistence farming loan. This is a bigger operation. It's it's business, commercial. These are are like real players in that uh, society. And so the manager looks at him and says, well, tear it up. Write a new contract out and put 50, just 50. Reduce it by 50% right now. The guy, with all haste, writes a new contract, signs his name. Well, then he dismisses him and calls the second debtor in. How much do you owe? And he replies, well, 100 measures of wheat. And this is even more than the former It's somewhere around 39,000 liters of grain, which is a yield of some 100 acres of wheat valued at some 2,500 to 3,000 denarii, eight to 10 years of labor for a day laborer. Indeed, it's not a subsistence little family loan. This is a large scale operation. This is business, it's commercial. So the manager says to him, tear it up, write out a new contract, 80 measures. He reduces by 20% on the spot. The percentage is less, but the actual dollar amounts come out to about the same. I mean, so all haste writes out a new one. What good fortune, 20% reduction right there. And so the manager, this dishonest manager, saves the debtors a lot of money, all at the expense of his master. Well, we get the idea, you know, the books are presented, he goes his way, and once the, master, once the manager lowers all the debts in the name of the master, once new contracts are written up and sealed, once the debtors spread the good word of praise for the master, and everybody knows about it, once the master finally becomes aware, it's impossible for the master to expose the fraud and rewrite the contracts, He can't undo it. His reputation and his future business relationships would go down the tank. He's stuck. So therefore, when the master gets his books, when he discovers what this slimy manager has done to him, all he can do is sit back in his chair and go, my word, 
What a crafty crook. Like he did it again. This guy is something. He got me. I mean, he's as unscrupulous and corrupt as you get. But I mean, I give it to him, he's good. I mean, he really pulled one over on me. I can't believe he did that to me. He is so crafty. So verse eight, the master commended, praised, applauded the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now he didn't praise the dishonest manager for his dishonesty, but he praises the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. An old commentator said, there's a world of difference between I applaud the dishonest steward because he acted cleverly and I applaud the clever steward because he acted dishonestly. Did you get that? He, he applauds him for his shrewdness. One trait, one outstanding quality he saw in him was this foresight, this astuteness, this cleverness, this craftiness in him. And it gets under our skin that he'd praise him for anything. He's just so unsavory, so seedy, but that's the hook. It's like, I mean, you know, you liked watching The Sting back in the day, or Ocean's Eleven, or The Italian Job. Or when you hear a report in the news about some intricate robbery, I mean, it gets your attention. And even though you say, that is so destructive and, and wicked, at the same time you're going, man, that guy had some skill. How did he do that? You marvel at it. And that's what Jesus highlights here. And the fact that the guy is just so bad makes this quality stand out so much. But it's not a one-off either. You recall in Matthew, Jesus has said, you know, be as wise as serpents and as harmless as doves. So then in the second half of verse eight, Jesus breaks out of the parable and gives the main point of it, which he wants to forcefully impress upon us today. And he, with this behind him, says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And that's gotta settle with us a bit. It takes some thought there. It really takes some thought to work that out. What does that mean for us? Jesus is saying that unbelievers, like worldly people, folks under the sun that just live for this world, like this dishonest manager, they're often more shrewd in accomplishing their limited temporal goals than are believing people, sons of the light, in accomplishing our unlimited and eternal goals. They just do a better job with what they're after than we often do with what we're after. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a rebuke here. Like it's a rebuke, it's gotta settle in and say, with what I know and who I belong to and where I'm going, shouldn't I be 
more on top of things than a person in this world who's only concerned with the 20, 30, 40, 50 years they've got here. See, the dishonest manager faced with a, a dangerous predicament. I mean, he was on the edge of a knife here. It's a crisis, his world is crumbling. He acts decisively, thinking about his future and throwing all his gifts, skill, and resources into resolving it. Like Oppenheimer, you know, when they, they build a city in the desert to figure out how to make this bomb, like everything's thrown into it. This guy, his whole life is about to implode. He doesn't roll over, he doesn't just take it, he doesn't take it lying down, resign himself, just hope everything's gonna work out. He gets busy and serious to change it. You see this creativity, this imagination. He's ingenious, really. So Jesus is looking at his disciples, his followers, those committed to him, those who have seen God's lavish grace for sinners and have responded in faith to him. Like taking all that in, you know, the parable of the sons and the, the, the sheep and the coin, just drinking in that grace of God that saves sinners. And he's looking at them, he's looking at us and he's saying, well, you don't tend to act as decisively with as much foresight about your future, you don't tend to get busy and serious, you don't put all your opportunities and talents and your gifts and your skill and your know-how into really following me and like learning more about this grace and then helping other people come into touch with it. Like, like I'm not seeing that in you, he says. It's like Alistair Begg just laid it down at his church. He goes, if the average business took as much raw material to get as little return as the average local church does on the basis of 12 months, it would deserve to be completely bankrupt. It's a searing rebuke, really, to us. Like, we can be very easy and, and content with, with our lower level of Bible knowledge, you know, that that's enough. Or our, our rate, if I can read this. See, my handwriting, I'm content with bad handwriting. Um, oh yeah, our rate of discipleship or, or our, our, like our desire that lost people would come to faith. I was thinking about this, this a couple of weeks ago. We, we, Alan and I went out to lunch with some people, and I really want to talk about the Lord with one of them. And I've been, it was on my heart. And so I kept trying to, you know, naturally, creatively bring the gospel into the conversation. It just wasn't going anywhere. Alan started laughing at me somewhere, just, I know what you're trying to do. That's good. Keep it up. But it was almost humorous because it just wasn't going anywhere. And afterwards, I just, my own mental processes, I'm going, well, okay, I did, I did what I can do. But then I'm looking at this passage, it just so happened that I'm looking at the passage about the same time, going, well, wait, you don't just resign yourself. If I were him, I wouldn't probably taken that either. I don't, he didn't know me very well. You think it through, we pray, we lay it before the Lord, and we say, well, okay, so what does this mean now? What does this mean now for me? Well, you and I 
have goals that are much bigger, that go much further. Like we're after not, you know, achievements in this world, which are great, you know, we need to do them, but we're out for more. We're out for more than a comfortable life for the next, you know, 30, 40 years, whatever. We're, we're after eternity. Like this is, this is the foyer. We're after glorifying God and enjoying him forever. We're after this banquet that, that Jesus is preparing for us. We're wanting to learn how to glorify and enjoy God as much as we can now. In some ways that accentuates glory for us. We're after trying to help other people come in touch with a whole different view of the world. Our, our goals are incalculably infinitely greater than what the worldly person is going after. So shouldn't that therefore put even more of our time and effort and thinking and skill toward it? Since our purposes are so broader than the narrow purposes of this world. And it's a great time to think that through. In a fall, in a church life, budget season, to pray that through. Jesus is gonna talk about money. We're gonna do that next week because we've run out of time. But for now, just think, isn't Jesus saying something like, a fruit of the Spirit is shrewdness. Doesn't quite fit in the list. But I think he's saying that. It's a forward-looking, thoughtful, decisive, creative planning for the future. The new heavens and the new earth faithful with all God's entrusted to us now with a view to then, that one day I'm gonna to get to stand before God and render an account. Like he's gonna welcome me in and I'm gonna be able to tell him about those opportunities. And so we're aiming and getting serious about Growing in grace, we're aiming and serious about building bridges into the lives of unbelievers. We have something we're working towards with all the gifts God's given us, this wonderful window of opportunity that we have to invest well in, for God's glory, for our eternal good, and gathering many to himself. And when we think of how forward-looking and how thoughtful and how decisive and creative God was in devising the gospel to rescue sinners in an unimaginable and unthinkable way by sending his dearly beloved son to be judged in our place at the cross to take the full penalty of all of our sin against God onto himself in order that he might erase our sin debt completely, not just 50% of it, not just 20% of it, but fully on the cross to tell us die, it is finished, paid in full, so that rebel sinners like us can be beloved and dearly beloved and honored sons and daughters of his at his lavish banquet. Doesn't it just inflame your heart stir your mind and your mental processes and your imaginations, doesn't it make you sit back and marvel and say, he got me, like he got me. So that you wanna reflect all of God's wonderful, gracious ingenuity toward others to bring them into touch with such a God of amazing grace. That 
is an incredible mission that we get to give our lives to. And might we grow in it more and more joyfully every day. Amen. Let's stand.